Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our traditional tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, Why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? Verse 7. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defined by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through your stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. My name is Philip, and I'll be taking great care of you. That's the last thing I remember just before Philip released the propofol into my IV and the anesthesia worked its magic and put me into a state of slumbering catatonic bliss. Yes, I had a procedure this week. In fact, I had two. An esophageal endoscopy and drum roll, please. A colonoscopy. I don't mind telling you. I even mentioned it on Facebook and Cindy said, well, I just don't believe I would be telling everyone that I had a colonoscopy. And I said, why not? You've been telling people that for years. I don't know how it happens in polite company, but every time we're at a dinner party, Cindy will say something like, did you know Ronnie's over 50 and he's never had a colonoscopy? I've had four. Well, honey, it's time for you to find a different topic of conversation because now that job is complete. 
And for the record, everything backstage is fine. No, <laughs> no polyps, no cancer, proper outflow. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go for 10 years. Just like your car's sealed transmission. Center stage is a different story. The only reason I submitted to all of these scopes is because I've been enduring some persistent, difficult, painful stomach issues. And it's not my liver, I knew that, or my pancreas. It's not my gallbladder, I thought for sure that it was. It's not really my stomach. For me, COVID is the gift that keeps on giving. I never even took an antacid in my life until after COVID. I didn't know what heartburn was until after COVID. I had a tummy like a cast iron skillet, but apparently coughing for a year will bust your gut, literally. I have this beautiful new addition to my anatomy somewhere over here called a hiatal hernia. Let's start a Facebook group. How many of you have a hiatal hernia and you're proud of it? Yeah, see? Got this little duffel bag now inside of me. And it appears that COVID, like any strong virus or body trauma, has flipped the autoimmune switch on my latent celiac disease. Apparently, it's been there all along, handed down genetically, but dozing as if hit by a dose of propofol. I'll know more in a few days if it is truly awakened to ravage my inside, so I may soon be joining the gluten-free wafer line at communion. I'll let, you, I'll let you know about that in the future. But isn't it, and I couldn't help but thinking this as Philip bid me good night, isn't it a miracle of science that medical professionals can put you to sleep, take minuscule cameras, I assume they are minuscule, they could have been the size of a 1975 Polaroid Instamatic for all I knew, but... It's a miracle that they can look inside your body, painlessly take biopsies, visually make a diagnosis, and then the real miracle is wake you back up. I mean, I can put someone to sleep. I'm a preacher. <laughs> Putting someone to sleep is pretty easy. Waking them back up, now that's the trick. And once awake, in a matter of a few groggy moments... It can be reported to you almost immediately what has been discovered. We are all desensitized, I think, to the marvel of all of this because it has become so routine. Meanwhile, our ancestors, 99% of the human beings who have ever lived, and a vast number of the population living today in developing countries, simply would not believe that such things were possible. And you know it goes way beyond endoscopes of either end. X-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, ultrasounds, laparoscopy, and the most amazing thing to me, heart catheterizations. You can lie on a cot and watch your own heart being examined, watch your own heart being cured by stent or by angioplasty. It's just there on the screen. You can take home a DVD or a jump drive of it. You can print off 8 by 10 glossies and give them one to each of your family members if you choose. It is truly a miracle. If only that could be done in the metaphorical sense. In the spiritual and the existential sense. It's one thing to cure the body, to look inside at the physical heart or your gut. It's another thing 
altogether to look inside and to heal the spirit, the soul, the psyche, the spiritual heart. Today's gospel reading, we call it the Revised Common Lectionary because it was revised in 1992 from the original Common Lectionary. So today's gospel reading from the Revised Common Lectionary was established more than 30 years ago, long before my investigative medical procedure this past week. But how timely if one is to speak from both Scripture and experience. The issue at hand, as Jesus has one of all his all-too-familiar confrontations with his sparring partners, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, the issue is one of contamination, ritualistic contamination, ceremonial corruption. There's an English word tossed about in the reading. The word is defile. The Greek word is koino. It's the root of where we get the word koinonia translated to mean community. But as a root by itself, it means common, ordinary. In the Gospels, it's only employed here and in Mark's parallel passage of the same event. To make something common, to make something ordinary, to treat something as usual does not sound like a crime or a sin. But if an act or an object is considered holy, if it's considered separate, sacred, divine, and you treat that act or that object in a mundane way or disregard it altogether, then you have made the holy unholy. You have made the unusual routine. You have made the sacred non-sacred. And our word for that is sacrilege. Or maybe even blasphemy if the infraction is serious enough. And that is the charge brought to Jesus by the Pharisees about his disciples. These guys are very... I found this on the web for setup. And that is the charge brought to Jesus by the Pharisees about his disciples. Check it out. What is going on today? (laughs) Technology, man. It's a miracle and it's a crime. That's what it is. So this charge is brought to Jesus by the Pharisees about his disciples. And these guys are so coy. Verse 2 of the text. They don't accuse Jesus directly. They say this. Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Now, of course, they are accusing Jesus in a backhanded kind of way. He is permitting his disciples to eat with unwashed hands. He is the one who could correct this. He is responsible for their bad behavior. And maybe we should stop right there and not pray to Jesus so much as pray for Jesus. All these centuries later, poor Jesus is still being held responsible for all of his followers' bad behaviors, are we not? But, for Jesus here, he takes full responsibility for what is going on. He takes the burden onto himself. He will take 
responsibility for the disciples' dirty hands, and in doing so, seized the opportunity to point to his opponents' dirty hearts. They are obsessed with externals. They are obsessed with behavior, with process, with procedure, with tradition, and enforcement of that tradition. Their hands are clean. But as Jesus would say to them later in the Gospel of Matthew, inside they are like a graveyard of dead bones. There's no life inside of them. They are religious Puritans. And they did have a pretty extravagant cleansing ritual. Pharisee means pious ones. Sometimes it was translated in the old text as the fiery ones. Does it bring back memories of fire and brimstone preaching? Because that's what they did. But they were also fiery in their zeal. They were serious about the law of Moses that they called the Torah. They were serious about their oral traditions that would later become the Mishnah and the Talmud. And it was their duty to obey the written and unwritten laws of God to remain ceremonially pure and to live righteous enough that one day they would enjoy the resurrection of the dead, that one day if they were righteous enough, it would bring the kingdom of God to earth. Now, that's what they believed. They ran all the schools. They're the largest political, social, and religious party in Jesus' day. And not only did they want to keep themselves pure so that the Messiah would come, they took it as their responsibility to police everyone else as well. Because only if this society would just get right... If this society and people around me, actually, if people around me would start acting more like me, then things would be a whole lot better. That's the Pharisee. Now, that Pharisee lurks inside all of us, does it not? If only they would. If only they, if only they. And this idea is, I've got my stuff together, why can't they get it together? I'm living right, why can't they live right? I'm following the rules. Pharisees, you see, are culture warriors. That's what they are. And they were happy to go around and cancel anybody that wasn't doing it their way. Now, these Pharisees are awful, awful familiar, aren't they? In the culture in which we live today. It's possible, and I think maybe it's even expected. Make sure I say this correctly. That religious people, then and today, can elevate their interpretation of God's word to a place of ultimate authority. But that interpretation is not necessarily the truth. It is an interpretation. And all of us have interpretations of the scripture, and all of our interpretations are stilted and incomplete and sometimes just flat out wrong because all we have is a subjective place to stand. All we have are our own experiences and the lenses that life has given us and we look through those lenses often and interpret the Scripture. So it's possible to take your interpretation of the Scripture 
your word and actually separate that word from the word of God and make the word your God and leave God out of it completely. Because once I've got my interpretation right, I don't need anything else to add to it. There's no place left for me to grow. There's no way I need to change my mind because I've got God's word. And often all we have is our interpretation. I think that's what's happening here with this hand washing violation. The sacrilege brought to Jesus' attention. This is not a failure on Jesus' disciples' part to stop the spread of COVID or the flu. What it is, is it is an act of sacrilege. Here's what the Pharisees would do. They would come to a meal, and they would wash their hands. They wouldn't do it like you or I would do it, you know, under the water, we're done. They would take their hands. They would have someone pour the water into their hands. They would wash, 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 wash. And then they would hold their hands straight up like this and let the water run down and drip off their elbows because once the ceremonial washing started, the water even itself became unclean. And so they would just stand there and let their hands dry. And then, when that was over, they would repeat it, water back into the hands, and then they would do this and let it run off the fingertips. The devout Pharisees did this before every meal, and super devout Pharisees did this between every course of the meal. Can you imagine going to a dinner party with these losers? <laughs> Takes forever. Where's John washing his hands? Are you kidding me? And so they are, they are obsessed with this kind of behavior. Here's what Jesus says to him, and he sort of comes at him. He, he sort of comes at him with an endoscopy and no anesthetic. Why do my disciples not wash their hands? Why do you elevate tradition over what is right? Why do you emphasize ceremony over compassion? Why do you appeal to Moses and the prophets to whom you say you are devoted and yet you ignore the heart of their message? Why do you cling to your man-made rituals, your narrow interpretations, your stage performances? So obsessed with looking the part and your hearts are so far away from God, you wouldn't know God if he walked up on you in the middle of the day. And then he quotes their favorite prophet, Isaiah, applying his words to them. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. There's a phrase that's entered the American lexicon in the 21st century, and I'm not really fond of it, but I am going to use it. It seems to be appropriate given the text in my experience this week. The Pharisees are now officially butthurt. <laughs> they took a spanking, a hard spanking. And Anna, you're exactly right. This is not the meek and lowly Jesus. This, this Jesus got a chip on his shoulder. This Jesus has come to the defense of people who cannot defend themselves. Jesus is meek and lowly with himself, with his own passions, with his own ambitions. But Jesus went from meek Lamb of God to Lion of Judah fairly quickly when it came to taking care of those that the, that the powerful and the merciless stepped on. 
And more times than not in our world, as it was in Jesus' day, those without, those without mercy and those without compassion can often be the most religious people that we know. Rubel Shelley, longtime Church of Christ pastor, academic friend to Terry and Diane Olive, he wrote this 15 years ago. And when he wrote it, I snagged it. It's been in my files for 15 years. Not, I'm not, not 20, 23, 15 years ago. Here's Rubel's words. The bulk of the finest people I've ever known are devoutly religious. But some of the meanest people I've ever known are also among the most religious. For example, one lady I grew to fear as a child and avoid could quote more scripture than just about anybody in our church, but little kids had better not get near her or touch her or she would screech at them and make us cry. Her husband was a cowering little fellow who hardly ever spoke and I never wondered why. (laughs) A preacher whom I recall had a withering wit that he turned on people to mimic, to mock, or to otherwise humiliate. The worst thing is that I sometimes laughed as he did it. If you think I'm making it up that truly devout religious people can be mean-spirited and just plain evil, just go read the online comments made in stories in the New York Times or your local newspaper that speak about evolution or homosexuality. The invective is so harsh I cannot reproduce it here. I've read a few of those pieces that made me think that the writer would kill somebody if he thought he could do it without getting caught. Yet... No one who ever reads those kinds of things has ever been helped in finding Jesus to understand his mission or to become his follower. Religion is the system of beliefs and institutional loyalties one embraces while following Jesus is the conscious imitation of the person we learn about in the Gospels. And the only people Jesus ever called names or declared in danger of hell were the most religious people of his time and place. They prayed. They made pilgrimages. They gave money. They worshiped with pious looks on their faces. They quoted scripture. But they had no clue about the loving, compassionate nature of God. Amen and amen. And I thank Rubel for writing that 15 years ago. And my sympathy is to him this week on the passing of his wife of more than 50 years and partner. Rubel understood Jesus' words. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That is what defiles you. That's what commits sacrilege. It is the attitude of the heart, not the action of the body. For from the heart come evil thoughts. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Jesus put all importance on the internal, our hearts, our motivations, our ruminations, the deep inner person that no medical device can access or diagnose, but God sees very clearly. This outer behavior, these rituals, these enforced interpretations, they are social And cultural constructs. They are religious wall decorations. They just don't seem to matter that much to Jesus. So why should they matter that much to all of us? I've kicked against institutional religion and institutional Christianity for decades now. And it always gets me in trouble. 
How can you be a part of the church and be so severe on the church? Who are you to think that you've got it right and 2,000 years of church history has it wrong? It's easy to point at everything that's bad. How about you trying to do something that's right? At least find their way into my inbox with regularity. Sometimes coming from those who were once dear friends. Well, any quarrel I have with the church is a lover's quarrel. It has been my life, even before I was born. I was carried in utero to church three times a week before I even drew my first breath. And no, I don't think I'm right and everyone else for centuries has been wrong. And further still, the best remedy for what is unhealthy is to aspire to and live out what is healthy. I'm trying that. But I will keep banging along and beating this drum about abusive religion until I am dead. Because of the manipulation. Because of the heavy burdens placed on people. Because of shaming and fear-mongering and unnecessary threats. Because if your religion makes you meaner, more judgmental, more afraid, more suspicious, more closed, or more angry, that religion has run aground. It should make you more open, more merciful, more understanding. The fruit of the Spirit, as I recall, is not the fiery passion of waging cultural crusade or making one more stubborn and unmovable in their, in their biases and predispositions. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, tolerance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the inner transformation that it should be the goal of faith. This is what all this church attending and Bible reading and praise singing and do-gooding is about. Or what it should be about. It's not to provide you with a sense of entitlement or a sense of spiritual superiority over those with whom you disagree. It is to make you, shape you into more of a Christ-like person. It is to change you from the inside out. I used to get so worked up over the externals, not unlike these Pharisees in Matthew 15. And then I would start fighting Pharisees about their externals. I was so hard on the hypocrites and the religious showmen and those trying to prove how holy they were. And I'll still be hard on them from time to time. But it dawned on me that I was playing their game. I wanted their behavior to change just like they wanted my behavior to change. That, is, that little tit for tat is not a game anybody's going to win. We all have to do the inner work. That's where it's at. We all have to look inside and allow God's penetrating light to cast light on our hearts. We have to submit to an internal examination. To refuse to do so is to refuse a diagnosis, is to refuse the path that will lead to our own healing. And I'm not lying when I say quite possibly the healing of the world. If we do the work here and not worry about what's going on out there because you can't control that but you can say yes to the work that God is doing in your own heart.